Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 332 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, and I'm coming to you with a topic today that I think will be particularly relevant given that many of you are racing very soon, which is this idea of how do you nail race day execution? How do you control the things that you can control so that you can get the outcome that you want? I'm going to break it all down in this episode, talking through all of the pieces that you should be thinking about, the details you should be nailing down so that you can give yourself the best chance to get the goal you want on your A race. So we'll get to that in just a second. Before we do a couple of things, I wanted to first thank my sponsors for this episode, Care Of who's been a multi-year sponsor now with me and it's a product that I use on a daily basis. And then of course, John G running apparel, they're sponsoring all of my episodes now and of loving their gear. So we'll talk mid episode about offer codes for both of those companies. Stay tuned. Before we jump into today's topic though, I wanted to quickly acknowledge the heartache felt by many of you as listeners, perhaps because of the Boston Athletic Association announcement this week about the Boston Marathon cutoff times. It took a Boston qualifying time at least five minutes and 29 seconds below the standards in order to actually get into next year's race, which meant that after a record number of applicants, 33,000 plus qualified runners, about a third of those 11,000 runners are not able to toe the line in Boston in April because they didn't meet that buffer cutoff time, which is absolutely heartbreaking, absolutely gutting for so many, especially after two straight Bostons in 22 and 23 where there was no buffer required. And so to have it suddenly jump to five minutes and 29 seconds is just gutting. And I can't help but absolutely feel for so many out there that are disappointed because of this announcement, especially those that were within 30 seconds of being able to toe the line next April. I have several of those athletes that I coach myself, and it's again, it's just heartbreaking to have the elation of running a Boston qualifier perhaps by as much as five minutes and 28 seconds to have that elation only to then many months later have your heart ripped out with this news is just absolutely gutting. And to me, it points to the fact that the process, the system is broken, that so many would have the elation of earning a Boston qualifying standard only to later have that elation dashed because they didn't actually get in and they aren't actually able to toe the line after for many, so many years of work. My sister who was on this podcast talking about her Boston qualifier, she came in with a five minute buffer and now is 29 seconds short of being able to actually toe the line in April. And again, just absolutely gutted for her. She earned that spot. She deserves to toe the line, and now she can't. So my heart goes out for my sister and for everybody who didn't make the cutoff this year. It's just, again, it's just gutting. And as a coach, it's hard to have those conversations with athletes who are just absolutely disappointed at this news. To me, 
again, it points to this idea that we need to change the process. I think the process has been broken and I would like to see the BA make some changes in order to make it a friendlier process for those runners that do qualify. So I'll give my suggestion on that in a second, but first wanted to just make a couple of comments that relate to questions I've had around this issue. One is people are asking me whether or not I think that the BAA will change the qualifying standards. Again, they've done it before. They'll potentially do it again. So my answer to that is I don't actually think so. I think because you had the last two years with no buffer, everybody got in, and then this year suddenly with the 529 buffer and more applicants than ever, I think partially what we're seeing this year is a significant bump from pent-up COVID, post-COVID demand for the race, particularly from international runners. During 2021, international runners couldn't even do the race. 2022, there were restrictions around vaccinations. 2023, things were actually fully open again, but I think people were still a little bit hesitant at that point to consider international travel for example, for a race like Boston, and now I think everybody's jumping back in. And so you had this pent-up post-COVID demand, both internationally and domestically, for the race that is, I think has caused a spike in applications this year that may or may not carry over to next year. So my suspicion would be that we would see a lower buffer if the process is the same next year. Now, for those that are disappointed who didn't get a time to toe the line who didn't quite make the buffer. I know a lot of people have asked me, well, what now? What now? And that's a very reasonable question. And I think I might actually do a whole episode on that question for those of you who are in that camp. But for now, I will say this. Please, please, please do a couple of things for me. One, feel the feels. Have all the emotions that you need to have over this news, whether that be sadness, anger, cry, be mad, feel the feels, get it all out. Just like you need to do after a bad race, you need to do the same here after this disappointing news, which is to let all the emotion out that comes. And number two, during that time, resist the temptation to make drastic decisions about your next steps in training because of this news. I don't want you making decisions about races to do, training to consider without giving yourself time to fully feel the feels and get back to a logical state of mind in order to then rationally choose your next steps, which might be going after another Boston qualifying time, perhaps with a bigger buffer. So yes, maybe that's on the table. Yes, maybe you should go do that. But I would encourage you first to let all of those emotions out. Give yourself time to process the things you're feeling right now before you make any drastic drastic decisions about what to do next in your training. Because in my experience, those types of drastic emotional decisions don't typically end up in a good place, whether that be because of this type of news or whether that be because you had a bad result on a race day. So please, please, please resist the temptation to jump to conclusions, to jump into next steps. First, feel the feels, process all of that emotion, then get to a logical place and make good decisions about what's next, which 
will mean making sure that you can put together a proper training cycle, that you're fully motivated to it, that this goal is still important to you, that you've crystallized your purpose in pursuing it. All of those things need to come with whatever your next steps might be and not just come with the anger and emotion and sadness that might that might have resulted from this news. So that's my advice for those that are in that camp. Again, my heart goes out to you. I'm absolutely gutted as a coach. These conversations are challenging and not fun for me either. I feel it just like my athletes do and all of you who are in this camp. And as I mentioned, I would like to see some changes to the process because I do think that there should be a guaranteed standard for Boston. And so here's my recommendation for the BAA, for those who might be listening. I think there should actually be a system by which you have two standards. One standard, that's an automatic standard, that if you run this time, you're guaranteed to get in no matter what, and the BAA will accommodate you. And then a secondary standard, which is a provisional standard, that would then be subject to the number of applicants. So for example, right now for a woman under the age of 35 or a non-binary athlete under the age of 35, you have to run three hours and 30 minutes in order to have a chance to apply. You would have had to run in the 324 range in order to actually get into Boston. And so my advice for the BAA would be to have an automatic standard for that age group and for all the age groups. And in the case of this example, that might be for women and non-binary athletes under the age of 35. It might be three hours and 23 minutes. So that if you run three hours and 23 minutes or faster, then you are guaranteed to have a spot on that starting line for the next Boston Marathon. And if you run that time, you can celebrate, you can be elated, you can have all the joy you should be able to have knowing that you're gonna be able to line up in Boston. Then, in that case again, secondary standard might still be three hours and 30 minutes. Or if you run into that standard, you have the provisional standard for Boston, and then you are subject to the number of applicants and to these associated quote buffers that we've been dealing with. It's a subtle change, but it reframes the standards in a way that I think is more palatable. It gives that person who runs under the guaranteed standard that certainty, and it appropriately couches what is the current standards, which is that they are actually provisional. They're not guaranteed. And so if you have a provisional standard, then perhaps you can celebrate a bit, but also still know in the back of your mind that that, that might not get you in. It's a subtle shift in process, but it creates an opportunity for people to have that knowing, that guarantee that if they run a certain time, they're going to be in and it's a reframing in a sense of the current standards but one that i think would make the process much more palatable for people and also give you a line to go after a goal to achieve that would guarantee your spot versus this ambiguous this unknown this imaginary line of sorts that will change from year to year where you just don't know whether you got in and I think there should be a time at which you absolutely know which you shouldn't have to worry about 
whether you can toe the line in Boston or not. And so that's that's my recommendation. Let's have an automatic standard. Let's have a provisional standard that's subject to the number of applicants. And I think that significantly solves some of the consternation that's currently out there about the process. So if anyone from the BAA is listening, you can have that idea for free. And of course, we'd love to hear any other ideas that people might have about how to make this a better process. Feel free to fire those over to chris at roguerunning.com and perhaps I'll talk about it on the episode where I'm going to talk about what's next for some of you who might be in the camp of outside looking in on these Boston buffers. All right, with that, we'll wrap our intro. Let's jump into my main topic for the day, which is executing on race day. I know many of you have fall races, half marathons and marathons, and maybe 5Ks and 10Ks that are coming up in the coming weeks and months. We've got Chicago next week as I record this. We've got Toronto and Marine Corps and New York and Philly and so many others that people might be racing very soon. And I wanted to talk about how you can get the most out of your race day experience by planning the best you can around executing on race day by controlling the controllables. There's a lot that we can't control when it comes to race day, whether it might be the weather or travel issues and logistics that might go awry, but you can absolutely control certain elements. And so this episode really is about how do you control all the things that you can control in order to take some of the variability out of, out of the possible outcome so that you can give yourself the best chance of nailing it on race day. Because look, again, there's things outside of your control. You can also just have a bad day, but you can always rest assured and feel confident in your result, regardless of whether you hit your goal, if you did everything you could if you controlled the things that were in your purview in order to give yourself the best shot at nailing your goal. So we're going to break it down. I've got four categories to talk about in this planning, which is how do I prepare and execute one, pre-race logistics, two, pace strategy, three, nutrition and hydration, four, the mental prep that you might need to make sure that your mind is right for race day. And before I jump into those categories, I wanted to quickly remind you that obviously these elements are important for executing to the best of your ability, but they're also important, I think, for dealing with the pre-race nerves and anxiety that might come with your anticipation of a race. Oftentimes people tell me in the taper, particularly, particularly that they're struggling with doubts, with anxiety, with the what if potential bad things that can that can happen on race day, all of that stuff starts running through your mind as your training scales back a little bit during the taper, as the race becomes imminent because you really start to get anxious for that start line to be there right in front of you and your mind plays tricks on you as a result. All of those feelings, emotions, nerves are normal. It's a part of the process even as an experienced runner, I feel all of those things on race day when I'm prepared to toe the line. 
Now, I do think that generally as you become more experienced at dealing with those feelings and emotions, they again don't go away, but you do become better at processing them. And a big part of processing them from my perspective is being able to channel that energy into pre-race preparation. It's acknowledging the doubts and feelings and nerves that you're having and then taking those thoughts, taking that energy and funneling it, redirecting it into preparing. So you take that nervous energy and you slide it into what can I do now to actually prepare for the day? And again, that preparation falls into these four categories. So if you're the one who's having the nerves, the anxiety, that uncertainty about what might happen on race day, acknowledge those feelings. It's okay to have them. We all have them. But then channel it into preparation. Channel it into the details I'm going to talk about here for me, that's associating. That's There's two different strategies for dealing with those emotions. One is associating all this planning that I'm going to talk about. You can also dissociate, which is disconnecting from it all and finding something to distract you, like watching a movie, reading a book, go binging on Netflix, whatever it may be. But this episode's about associating, about digging into the planning in a way that you eliminate the variability as much as you can for race day. So again, four categories, pre-race logistics, pace strategy, nutrition, hydration, and mental prep. Let's go through those in turn, starting with pre-race logistics. We're going to go through four different areas here as we talk about this. One is travel. Travel. First of all, to the extent that you can, I recommend arriving at least two days before your race day and not the day before so that you have plenty of time to get settled in, get checked in, get your packet, not have to rush, not have to worry about whether or not you're going to be able to get everything you need to done in city once you're there. Relatedly, as a part of the pre-race travel and logistics, I want people to think about their final runs leading up to race day itself. I always recommend doing a shakeout the day before, 25 to 30 minutes, perhaps with strides at the end, four to five strides if you're used to doing those. But also I like people to, if possible, get at least a couple of runs in after their travel in order to shake out the stuff that kind of gets built up in your legs from travel, whether that be driving or flying. I want you to get, if you can, a couple of runs in in city after you travel so that you have that opportunity to create movement, which promotes blood flow, which gets your legs fresh for race day. So if you're flying on a Friday with a race on Sunday, ideally you would fly Friday morning to a short run when you arrive and then another shakeout run the day before on a Saturday. So that's one example, but there can be many others. And obviously, if you can't travel in time in order to do a couple of runs while you're there, that's okay. But just consider how your week should be structured based on where your travel sits. And then consider how your runs during race week fit in around that so that it's optimized as much as possible. So that's one thing to think about. The second would be pre-race meals. Now, as I mentioned in episode 290, if you're thinking about carb loading, you can go listen to that episode. I don't typically recommend carb loading for people. I recommend that you eat normal foods in normal amounts during race week. 
there are a couple of carb loading protocols that will allow you to get the benefit of carb loading, carb loading but those are seven-day protocols that require significant variance in how you eat from what you might normally eat. Personally, I think it's too risky for most people to try those protocols, although I do detail them in episode 290. So if you're interested, go check it out. But if you're considering carb loading, that's a seven-day process. So it's got to start well before race day. If you're not following one of those processes, you can still have a great race. And in fact, that's what I recommend for the vast majority of people. What I want you to do is not worry about carb loading, but instead simply worrying about eating normal foods in normal amounts, all consistent with the things you've done in training. So that means dinner the night before that's consistent with what you normally eat the night before long run. That means eating a breakfast the morning of that's consistent with what you would normally eat for breakfast before a long run. So what that means as you're planning those meals, especially if you're out of town, that you're trying to choose foods and or acquire foods that are going to be consistent with what your body needs, with what you're used to, with what you know won't mess with your stomach so that you can give yourself the opportunity to perform your best on race day. And so in planning, you want to be looking at restaurants that are consistent with that, making reservations as needed in planning in order to eat at those restaurants. That will mean also potentially going to the grocery store to buy foods that you can eat at your hotel or at home the morning of the race so that you have exactly what you need to replicate what you've used on long runs prior to the race. Now, it's important to note a lot of people end up thinking about pasta or carb loading in that sense, in the very traditional sense, but I would only do that if that's what you're used to actually eating. If you're used to eating pasta, great, have pasta. If you're not used to eating pasta, don't have pasta. Just because the mythology of marathoning talks about carb loading with pasta doesn't mean you need to. And in fact, it's actually not going to be productive for you unless you know that's what works for you. So don't carb load with pasta. Don't even carb load. If you're not following the seven-day protocol, simply eat the normal foods in normal amounts and make sure you're planning ahead so that you can eat at a restaurant or you can cook it yourself both the night before for dinner and for breakfast so that you have exactly what's consistent with what your body knows. And for some people, that means bringing hot plates to hotel rooms or toasters to hotel rooms in order to actually get what they need done for these meals. And if that's what you need, do it. It's not something I do because I can usually find something that's consistent with what I'm used to eating at restaurants in whatever city I might be in. But do what you need to do to make sure you're getting those things consistent with what you're used to. Number three in this category, getting to the race on race day. You need to be thinking about those logistics. If you're in your hometown, how are you going to drive there? Where are you going to park? Where's the best parking that will be easiest to access with the least amount of crowds that will be most convenient to the start area to minimize your movement from the, that parking area to your start area? Or if you're in a city and you're needing to walk to the start or take an Uber or take public transportation to the start, Make sure all those details are thought about and planned so that you can minimize the energy that you expend 
on that step before you even start your running. I can remember in Boston one year, I was staying actually in Cambridge, and I was taking one of the private buses to the start area. That private bus actually boarded in Cambridge, so it wasn't too far from my hotel. And I looked at the map, it was about three quarters of a mile away, so I decided, well, I'll just walk to the bus. And unfortunately, I didn't notice that there was a rail, public transportation rail, a train that went through the area so that it was between my hotel and where I needed to be. And so I ended up in a spot where I couldn't cross because there was fencing and train tracks and then more fencing to get to where I needed to be. And I thought I could cut through directly, but I couldn't. So I ended up having to, ended up having to go around. And by the time I got to that bus, I'd probably walked a mile and a half combined with the mile you have to walk from the high school and middle school in Hopkinton to the start line in Boston. I ended up walking about two and a half, two and a half miles before I even started running that day which was absolutely not optimal for pre-race movement. So instead, I should have done more homework on how I was going to get to that bus so I could get to the start line. And so you need to be doing the same. Consider where you're staying. Consider how to get to the start line. Consider the easiest path there to minimize the energy that you expend prior to beginning running. And if that means you're in a place like Boston or New York and you have certain pre-race logistics to get to the start line, the buses in Boston or perhaps the ferry or bus in New York, then you really want to do your homework on what that looks like so that you can minimize the trauma, the energy spent, the worry that comes with actually getting to that start line. You just don't want to burn extra energy before you even start running on the day. So do your planning around getting to that start line. Then the fourth category here is start line logistics itself. I highly recommend that you find a map of the start line, that you study it, you know where you're entering that area, you know where all the different elements in that area are, are located, including restrooms, the gear drop, the corrals and where you might enter those in order to line up based on what corral you've been assigned to. And of course, you'll want to know exactly when you have to line up in the corral, when the corrals close, how much you might be needing to stand in place before you actually hear the gun go off. Think about all of those elements. Relatedly, it also might be a consideration to have some throwaway gear for you to wear if the weather's going to be chilly so that you can cover up and be as warm as possible or if it's raining perhaps wear a poncho so that you can be as dry as possible before that gun goes off so think about all those pieces as i highlight this section one of the i think most critical elements is really understanding how quickly or soon you need to get to the start area and how quickly or soon you need to get into the corral depending on the size of the race there are certain races that it's really easy to just walk up and jump in not long before the start gun goes off. Perhaps those are smaller races or races that have logistics that are a little bit more manageable. The Austin Marathon is actually a great example of that. It's a fairly large race. You're going to have 16,000 people lining up for both the half and the full. But the way the logistics are set up on Congress Avenue in Austin, it's actually really easy 
to get into the start area and jump in regardless of when you get there. You could get there five minutes before and probably still up, end up in a decent spot. Houston, as another example, another race in Texas, is very different. You need to be lining up 20 to 30 minutes before your corral gets released in order to be in a good spot because the way those corrals are set up and the way that race is structured, and it doesn't have that too many more people in Houston for that race. Certainly Chicago and Boston and New York have their own unique logistics that require you to plan accordingly. And so just make sure that you talk to people that have done your race, you know, based on those conversations, how soon you should get to your corral, how soon you need to leave for the start. So you give yourself plenty of time to be in position exactly where you need to be in order to run the pace you hope to run on race day. So consider all of those things, all of those pre-race logistics that could affect your ability to get to the start line as seamlessly and easily as possible. So that's number one, pre-race logistics. Before we get to number two, I want to talk about my partner for this episode, Care Of. They've been a multi-year partner of mine now. I use their product every day. They're a vitamin and supplement company that is a subscription service. So they give you the ability to get exactly what you need delivered to your door on a monthly basis so you have all the daily packs you need to take exactly what's required for you to perform your best. Performing in the running realm is all about consistent habits. Getting your weekly training in, doing that at the right efforts, getting the workouts and long runs when you need them. And it's also about For many of us, taking the supplements and the vitamins and minerals that we need to make sure that we can perform and not forgetting it. My journey with Care-of started because I I needed vitamin D, but I would forget to take it or I'd forget to reorder it, so I wasn't having it in the consistency that I needed. And now through Care-of, I get it, plus I get other things that I need to actually make sure I'm performing well. So if you need to solidify your habits in this area, go to TakeCareOf.com. Take their quiz. You can enter your goals and needs, and they will spit out a recommendation for what might be included in your daily packs. You can then select from that menu and choose the things that are going to be most relevant to you. You can look at the science behind each. You can look at the ingredients within each and make good decisions about what's included in your daily packs. And then you just sit back You receive them and you take them daily. It's that easy. So for 50% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and use the code ROGUE50. That's R-O-G-U-E-5-0 for 50% off your first order. Go to takecareof.com, take the quiz and check it out. You will not regret it. All right, let's jump back into my conversation about preparing for race day. We've talked about pre-race logistics. Now let's talk about pace strategy. I'm not going to dig into the details of how you might create a pace strategy, but I want to make sure that you are doing it. I've got a whole episode on creating a pace strategy, which you can check out at episode 250, where I talk about building a pace strategy. But for the purposes of this conversation, I'm going to just talk about it in general terms and talk about all the things you should be considering as you're building your pace strategy. First of all, you need to know the course. You need to understand where the hills are, how the turns are set up, how many turns are there, and 
where, in fact, your GPS may or may not be useful to you. I think one of the biggest issues that people have is being over-reliant on their GPS and not knowing where it might actually fail them. Chicago is a great example. You go through a tunnel in mile one, you're in a very urban environment, so oftentimes your GPS isn't actually connecting to a satellite until several miles into the race. I've also had people do Chicago where the GPS never actually connected and so they were completely flying blind, didn't know what was that didn't know what their pace was. They were over-reliant on their GPS to help them gauge their effort. And so some things I recommend as standard recommendations, regardless of whether you're in a race like Chicago that's urban or any race, is that you turn off your auto lap so that it's not auto lapping at every mile, but instead you manually lap at the mile markers so you know exactly what your time is on the measured intervals as defined by that course. So you know exactly, regardless of whether you're connecting to the GPS, how fast you're going. So think about that piece. Will your GPS be useful? Where will it not be useful? Will it connect? Will it not connect? And make sure that you have a manual lapping backup plan, regardless of what your race looks like. Beyond that, as I already referenced, I want you to know the course like the back of your hand. I want you to be able to visualize it in a way that's going to be helpful for you so that you can program the nerves to expect what's coming on race day. That means studying the course map. That means knowing where the hills are, knowing where the turns are. That means being able to visualize the course in all of its glory. I had someone message me on Facebook this week and ask how they can prepare for an upcoming race and how they could better visualize a race course without actually having seen it. And one of the tips there is just simply going to YouTube. There's a lot of people that have run these races with GoPros on. There's sometimes races that put together these videos themselves of fast forwarded versions of running that course so that you can actually soak in the visuals as well without even having been to that city. So if you're not sure what the terrain looks like or what the course looks like, go search on YouTube and you might be able to find an actual video of someone running the course or driving the course so that you can then start to bring some of those images into your visualization exercises. I like to also change the background on my computer to the actual course map. So in moments between work where I'm daydreaming about what things might happen on race day, I can just study that course map and get a sense for the directions I'm going to be going, the hills if you have a little elevation chart on that course map, and also the turns so that I can then visualize running the tangents and executing a race in a short as short a distance as possible. So know your course. Then, once you know your course, I want you to, either doing it individually or working with your coach, create a baseline pace strategy that's going to help you know exactly by section of the race what your strategy should be and how your pace should evolve. Again, in episode 250, I talk about how you actually create that yourself. But you want that baseline, and informing that baseline should be what the course looks like, should be what your training has looked like, how you've been able to execute at your target marathon pace, both in workouts and perhaps in some of those long runs, so that you know exactly what pace to target, 
and also how that pace then plays out at the various sections of the course. Create that baseline first, and then as you get close to the race, and usually I recommend doing this not until you get to two or three days out, we can start to see what the hourly forecast might look like on race morning, then you're going to need to make weather adjustments based on the final conditions that you might face. And this weekend I'll be in Twin Cities helping our athletes. It's our rogue destination race for the fall. And we'll have over 60 athletes running the 10 mile race and the marathon in Twin Cities. And unfortunately it's going to be unseasonably warm. It'll be about 70 degrees at the start for both races. And so as a result, you have to make adjustments based on weather. Unfortunately, you can't bite physics. You can't bite chemistry. Heat is a bad thing for chemical reactions like, like respiration. And so we have to make adjustments and slow our pace down in order to be able to run a smart and effective race. And so you have to make those weather adjustments at the last minute within that two or three day window so that you can adjust based on weather for race day. On episode 313, I talk about managing tough weather on race day and give you some of those rules of thumb for making adjustments based on temperature, based on wind, based on humidity, and all the things that you might face in what has become, unfortunately, a very unpredictable race weather situation, regardless really of when your race is. You could have potentially tough conditions at any point in the year, pretty much anywhere. And again, unfortunately, in Twin Cities, we're going to have some tough conditions. Doesn't mean you can't still have a good race and run a beautiful race, but you do have to make those adjustments. So set your baseline, then make those weather adjustments in the final days. And look, believe me, I understand how hard it is to swallow your pride and make those weather adjustments, but you have to absolutely do it and you can still have an amazing outcome. The time may not be what you wanted, but in context with the weather, I promise you can still run a race that you're proud of. So number two category is pace strategy. Make sure you have that nailed and dialed in. Number three category is nutrition and hydration. The most important thing you can do in this category is have a plan and stick to it. The related point there is that you should have a plan based on what you know works for you from your training and then stick to it. Don't do anything new. Don't try things you haven't tried. Stick to exactly what you've been experiencing, what you've been experimenting with in long runs prior to race day. So let's dig into each component here for a second. First of all, nutrition. What are the elements of nutrition to consider? So first of all, I want you to think about what you've been doing in long runs, and I want you to map that to race day. What has worked for you in long runs? What gels have worked? What flavors have worked? What frequency has worked? What modality, whether you're taking gels or perhaps chews, what brands have worked? Think back on your training and consider what has been the best formula for you, both in terms of what you're taking, but also in terms of the frequency. And then I want you to map that experience to race day. Now, it's important to note as a part of that process that there may be reasons for there to be subtle, subtle differences between long runs and race day. One thing I like people to do is actually have a plan and write it down relative to their nutrition. 
Think about the intervals of time or distance that you've been taking your nutrition in long runs and then figure out how that correlates to what you're going to do on race day. So for example, if you're used to taking perhaps a product every 35 to 40 minutes, how does that translate to miles? And then if it once you translate it to miles based on your pace, what does that mean about when you're going to be taking your nutrition and how it will sequence through the race? So if, for example, you follow my textbook nutrition protocol of starting one hour into your long run or race and then taking a follow-up serving every 35 to 40 minutes, and let's say you're running an eight-minute mile, that might mean that you're taking your first gel or choose at mile seven and then you're coming back to it every 40 minutes or every five miles so you take it at mile seven and five and 17 and 22 which then gives you four miles to the end where you should have enough energy based on that last gel at 22 miles and so you want to take that protocol that you followed in long runs map it to race day I prefer that people map it to the miles so that you can then figure out not only how many gels you need to take, but whether or not when you take that last planned gel, it sits within a time of the race that makes sense. You want it to be probably at mile 22 or 23 at the very latest so that you then get the full benefits of that energy coming in and you don't end up in a situation where you're taking a gel at mile 25 and you only have one mile to go. So... Take the protocol that's worked in training, map it to race day. As a part of that, you may also need to map it to the water stops and the aid stations. If, for example, you're used to taking water with your gels, then you're going to want to look at the course map, figure out where the aid stations are, figure out then what that might mean about the timing of your gels so that you can get that fluid to wash it down. Most races don't have water stops on the mile markers. They're slightly off from the mile markers and they might not be at every mile anyway. So you want to check the course map, figure out where those aid stations are. And then if needed, based on what you take with your gels or choose, map the two together so that you're thinking about your frequency of energy coming in with the fluids that you might need to wash it down so that you can map it exactly to what you're gonna experience on course. In addition, you're gonna wanna know what's actually on course. What gels are available on course? What fluids available on course? So that you can, again, replicate as closely as possible what you know works for you, while avoiding the things that you might know don't work for you. So for example, if the race is giving out gels on course, but those gel brands don't correlate to what you're used to or what works for you, then don't plan to take those gels that are provided on the course. If they happen to match in brand, make sure they match in flavor as well, because usually all of that information is available on the race website. And even if that's true, even if they're passing out the gels that you like, that are flavors that you like, I still want people to likely consider still bringing their own just in case. What if they run out of gels? What if they have a flavor that's different from what you like? You don't want to leave anything to chance. So make sure that you know what works for you and that you bring everything that works for you with you. Usually I recommend in addition that you bring one extra 
If you think you might need five gels on race day, bring six just in case because sometimes I've had people have gels explode on them or they try to rip it open in with their teeth and suddenly it all squirts out in the wrong direction and doesn't go down their, into their stomach. So you want to have some contingencies, some extra available just in case something goes awry with one of those gels. That means also that you're bringing all those gels typically if you're traveling with you. Don't rely on buying them at the expo because you may or may not be able to find them. Oftentimes, especially for the more popular items, those things get sold out very quickly at expos. So you want to bring everything you think you'll need with you in your suitcase, in your luggage, in your carry-on ideally. So in case your luggage gets lost, you still have it so that you control all of those variables while leaving nothing to to chance as it relates to what you're going to eat on race day. As a part of your hydration plan, I often recommend as a standard, particularly with marathons, that people skip the first station because it can be crazy. And then after that, take something from every station. Typically, if the weather's good, alternating between water and electrolytes all the way through the race until mile 21 or 22, in which case, if you're ahead of it, then you're probably good. And you can then rely on the thirst cues that you might have and grab something if you feel like you need it but skip it if you don't. But no, as a part of that hydration strategy, how frequency the st- how frequent the stops are because some races are less than others and also know particularly what type of electrolyte drink they're going to have on race day. And ideally, you want to practice with that electrolyte drink so that you know exactly what you're getting into. You know exactly how your stomach will respond. It used to be I want to say back in the day when I was a younger runner, it seemed like every single race had Gatorade or Powerade and it was very predictable. But now you'll see races have Noon and Science of Sport and different brands that may or may not be brands that you're used to having. And so usually that information is available on the race website. Go check it out well before you get to race day. Know what they're going to have and then try it so that you know whether or not it's going to sit with you. And if for whatever reason that electrolyte drink isn't going to work for you, then perhaps you need to be thinking about supplementing with electrolytes via salt pills or some other electrolyte supplementation that you bring on your own to make sure you're getting the hydration that you need. So plan all of those variables. And then the most important thing, as I said at the beginning of this segment, is have a plan and stick to it no matter what. I can't tell you how many veteran racers I've had tell me they skipped their gel or they skipped their chews at mile 13 of the marathon because they quote felt good. Well, of course you felt good at mile 13 of the race because you're supposed to, but you're also supposed to take your nutrition no matter what, no matter how you feel. So have a plan, know the plan and stick to it no matter what. That's the third category here. Before we talk about the fourth category, mental prep, I want to talk about my second sponsor for this episode, John G. John G. Running Apparel. I actually just got a shipment from them, which I'm very excited about, particularly excited about some of the fall and winter items that I hope I can wear soon enough here in the warm Austin area. But I want you to go check out Run John G. 
their products are highly functional. They have a five-year run everywhere guarantee, which means they're also highly durable. And they are a product that supports great causes. 2% of their revenue goes to support water projects all around the world. Plus, their designs highlight artists and cultures from all around the world as well. So when you buy their gear, you know you're not only getting good stuff, but you're supporting good causes and sending good energy back into the world. Go check their stuff out. I have a code for you. It's Rogue15 for 15% off your order, which you can use anytime. You can get one order, you can get two orders. You can save 15% with my code no matter what. Go to johng.com or runjohng.com. Use code Rogue15, R-O-G-U-E-1-5 for 15% off. I promise you'll love their stuff too. Go check it out. Okay, let's jump in and close this out, preparing for race day, making sure you control the controllables. This fourth category, mental prep, is a category that I think is often neglected. We think about these first three categories, we think about all of our physical training, and yet we show up on race day having neglected our mental preparation. So I want to give you some things to think about here. I would also recommend going back to episode 150. That's episode 150, where I talk about mental tips and tricks for race day and and cover some of these elements in more depth as well as more. But what I recommend from a mental prep perspective at a bare minimum is a few things. And then again, you can check out more at that episode 150. First of all, I want you to think about your purpose for the day. Reflect on why you signed up for the race in the first place. What drew you to it? What drew you to the goals you have for the race? Go back in time and capture that dreamer who clicked on register for a race and who paid money for something and who set out to do the work to go get that goal. What did that person want for this day? Go back and remember it. Put that those thoughts, put that purpose into words, ideally write those words down so that you can have that top of mind for race day. You need to know why you're doing this because if you can connect to your why when the going gets tough, because even if you're having an amazing day, it's still going to be challenging at some point, but when the going gets tough, you can bring that purpose top of mind so that you then dig as deep as you can to get that goal to fulfill that purpose. So that's step one on the mental side. Before you do anything else, go back to the beginning. Why did you want this in the first place? Second step, and I talk about this on other episodes besides 150, but I think it's absolutely critical. Develop your mantras for race day. Science tells us it works. Some people might think it's cheesy. It is not. I recommend, and I think this is a unique categorization to me is two types of mantras for race day. One, rhythm mantras. Two, fight mantras. I want you to have two or three in each category. You may end up thinking of others on race day. That's totally fine. But if you've done your homework, then you'll be prepared and you'll have an open mind that might bring in other ideas when the race is going itself. But you want to have two or three in each category. Rhythm mantras are for the early and middle miles where it's all about finding a rhythm, staying relaxed, getting in a groove, burning as little energy for as long as possible so that you can optimize 
for the finish. Rhythm mantras. What's going to get you relaxed? What's going to help you be smooth and in control and burn as little energy as you can in those middle miles? And then second, fight mantras for the end, for the final five or six miles of a marathon, for the final three miles of a half marathon, for the final two miles of a 10K, maybe the final mile of a 5K. What's going to get you to dig as deep as you can to truly get every second out of this race? We learned this week from this Boston Buffer situation that every second does count. You want to be able to look yourself in the mirror after a race and and say, hey, I got everything out of race day. Every second mattered. I fought for every little bit of that race that I could. So what's the word or phrase that is going to help you fight? And again, maybe the race is going great. Maybe you're crushing it, but you're still going to have those doubts creep in. You're still going to have pain. It's still going to be hard at certain points. So how are you going to fight through that pain? Dissociate from it so that you can then get out everything out of that race that's possible. So fight mantras. Don't neglect that part. Then think about what other tools you might bring to bear for race day. What else is going to be in your mental toolkit? I've got other examples in that episode 150. Some of them that I recommend would be, one, this idea of going fishing. At the end of a marathon, if you're not passing people, or at the end of a half, if you're not passing people, then you're likely slowing down yourself. So look ahead, not 10 yards, but maybe 30 or 40 yards. Find a bright shirt, a singlet. Go chase that person down, pass them, and then find the next singlet or shirt to go chase. Go fishing continually pass people use those in the race as carrots to go finish as strongly as you can another one i like to use is counting it's kind of a neutral mantra particularly i like to use this for the end of a race where it might be in the final mile or two and i'll count for 30 seconds or 60 seconds telling myself that if i just push for 30 or 60 seconds then maybe i'll get to a different or better place and oftentimes it's true Maybe it's not, though, and I'll just start again. I'll count from 1 to 30 again or 1 to 60 again, and that helps me dissociate from the pain, give me something else to focus on besides the suffering so that I can push all the way to the end. And I can tell you I've counted to 60 over and over again for two miles a day in a race, and it's been an absolutely amazing way to push through some of that pain at the end. So counting is another example, one that's certainly going to be in my quiver on a race day. But there are others. And there may be things that I don't mention in these episodes that you know works for you. I want you to bring those things to bear. Have them top of mind so that you're ready to go use them. And then lastly, I want you to visualize all of it. Visualize really everything in this process of planning that we talked about in this episode. Visualize the pre-race elements. Visualize getting to that start area, start area, navigating to gear check, going to the restroom, going to get lined up in your corral. Visualize standing in your corral and what you're going to be doing to prepare your mind and your body for that gun to go off. Then visualize the gun going off and all of the adrenaline and energy that comes with that, all of the people. And visualize soaking it in while simultaneously controlling it so that you don't overdo it and go out too fast. Visualize executing your race plan mile by mile with the nutrition and hydration that you need along the way. Visualize using these mental tools 
Visualize using your mantras, visualizing having tough moments and using your mental tools to overcome them. Visualize getting through to those later miles and what it'll look like and feel like to endure the suffering and pain that comes with those later miles. Use the mental tools to overcome them and get to that finish line with your goal time on the clock and then visualize what it's going to feel like to have that goal in hand after the finish line. Visualize it all because science tells us that actually that helps our nervous system prepare in a way that is very similar to what it's like to actually do the thing. So the last step, and it doesn't have to come all at once, I usually do it in chunks, is visualizing every element of the race so that your nervous system and your mind are as prepared as possible to go execute it. Again, some people say that's cheesy, but look, I'm telling you, science tells us it works. So that's the final mental tip I would recommend, but it kind of ties it all together. As I wrap here, I want to remind you that certainly there are things out of your control, but there is more in your control than perhaps you think. So go back through the pre-race logistics, the pace strategy, the nutrition and hydration planning, and certainly the mental prep. Make sure you've done your homework. You've prepared along all of these elements. You've controlled the things you can control so you can eliminate chance as much as possible on race day and and you're not going to be able to control it all there's variables that you can't control like weather but if you control the things that are in your purview that are in your hands to manage and deal with then you're going to give yourself the best chance to have a, a good race day and that's all you can do and if you do that if you do everything that's in your power to get the goal that you want then i promise you you can be satisfied and rest easy and be proud of the result no matter what the time is on the clock so with that we'll wrap this episode and i'm going to wish you all the best luck in planning and in executing your races to come here in this fall season as always you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on twitter instagram or facebook at roguerunning thanks for listening we'll talk to you next time